Well, uh, I was sitting uh, in a coffee shop on Friday, uh, as is quite common, and uh, I had my Bible open, and I had some notes that I'd been preparing for this talk, and my Bible also had one of the term cards, one of our term cards on it, and it said Christchurch Earlsfield, and I could see this lady, and I kind of like just about a, you know, a chair and away from me, sort of like peering over, thinking, who's the odd bloke with the Bible open in a cafe in Wandsworth? And then I saw about 10 minutes later that on her iPad that she'd managed to find Christchurch Earlsfield. And I thought, that's nice. Just adding to our quota, which Google Ads would kind of, no, but we, we don't go there. And, and, you know, I thought, that's interesting. And then she sort of said, yeah, so what are you looking at? And we got into a conversation and I bumbled through kind of yeah, roughly what the gospel was about and the claims of Jesus Christ and how as a church we wanted to make uh, Jesus known. It's very interesting, though. We got on well, but she seemed somewhat impenetrable. I think firstly, because I don't mean this horribly, I hope she's going to listen to this talk, so I said I would speak about it. Um, I think firstly because of her ignorance. That is, she didn't, um, she was unwilling to listen to any coherent, logical, rational answer that I gave. But I think that was compounded by a second and probably bigger issue. And that was she was impenetrable because she was so self-satisfied. And I said that to her. I, you know, she was so secure in her life now. She had a wonderful life materially. It looked, if you like, perfection. And to think of anything that was to come was, it felt like an inconvenience in some ways to her. After a few minutes, we chatted. It was very pleasant. She got up and, and we shook hands and she sauntered out, got into her brand new Range Rover and drove off to enjoy, I guess, her current prosperity. But very probably she left to neglect her eternal bankruptcy. I have to say, after that conversation and throughout the day, I felt particularly sad. Had I done as best as I possibly could, Probably not. But one line of conversation that I had with this lady really kind of got to me. And I, I was kind of, why did she ask that? And she said something like this. She said, how radical are you? How radical is your church? Now, I should have followed, I think, with that line of thinking. I didn't. I was answering a previous question of hers. She probably, in her mind, though, had some inaccurate stereotype of what radical faith, radical religion looked like. I probably should have answered, yes, but not in the way that you're thinking. <coughs> what was behind the question, though? That's the interesting thing. I guess the radicalised religious groups that are in the press at the moment, you know, that we've been praying about in northeastern Nigeria, that was probably at the forefront of her mind. If she's saying, am I, am I sitting next to one of them? Maybe. But I should have been the one who said, hey, hey, we may be radical. But, and Jesus was very radical, but radically loving. You know, are we radically different? Yes, we are. I hope you can see that in a good way. Are we radically honest about life, about death, about pleasure and goodness and kindness and, and joy and work and relationships? Yes, yes, yes. We should have said yes to all of those things. Oh, Christians are radical. 
but not as this lady most probably imagined. And Jesus calls us, doesn't he, to, to lead radically new lives and to enjoy and live in the hope of a radically different eternity. But his call on the life of the Christian is not a partial thing. Oh, it's a radical life, but it's also a radical scope of which he calls us to in life. That is, Jesus has the authority to penetrate every facet of your life, even the bits that you don't want him to touch. That is, Jesus' radical life transformation happens from the inside out, not the outside in, as in with other world religions. Jesus changes our hearts by his word and by his spirit. And it's a radical work, but it's one that ought to be radically loving and radically attractive to the world around us. Now, of course, the new atheists, people like Richard Dawkins and the late Christopher Hitchens and people like Sam Harris in the United States, they will criticise Christians and say, oh, that kind of radical religion, that kind of radical faith, that's the cause, isn't it, of all the growing kind of bloodshed around the world. Harris actually, Sam Harris once said this, certainty about the next life is incompatible with tolerance in this life. He's suggesting, you see, that if you hold any radical religious view of the life to come, then that will render you as someone who is irrational and intolerant. What he's also saying is that you are prone to violence. Now, of course, he seems to be ignoring the fact that the majority of the bloodshed over the last hundred years, the, the majority of cause of war has been in the name of no God rather than of a God. But radical faith, whatever life that encourages, is often deemed, isn't it, as quite dangerous in our kind of relativistic, so-called tolerant society. So why bother? I mean, why bother? If If you're a Christian here today, and I guess the majority of you are, why bother with Jesus if he calls you to such a radical existence? And if you're not a Christian today, I hope you feel hugely welcome. I hope you, you come along and you, and you feel that you can ask questions, that no one's pressing you into a corner, but rather you feel open and you just say, Look, I want to engage my heart and my mind here. But why consider the claims of Christ? Why does Jesus think that he can demand such a radical life change, such radical ways of thinking and feeling? And here's where it all comes down to Luke 6. It's all about his authority. It's all about his authority. Now Jesus has spent the the previous chapters of this orderly account, as Luke calls it, Dr. Luke. It's his collection. It's not a chronological collection. And that was totally legitimate in the writing of these days. But it's an orderly, logical account of who Jesus is. And Luke has demonstrated again and again Jesus' authority in his teaching, in his power over nature, in the healings, in the exorcisms. His authority is there for all to see. What perhaps may have been considered implicit, though, will now become very explicit in Jesus' words. I guess it would be like this. Let me illustrate if I can. It's like a boss with a young employee. 
You know, you know those kind of recent graduates, they come out of you know, university, there's a few moans already about, oh, I'm thinking about the recent graduate in my office. You know, they come along and they kind of think, oh yeah, it doesn't matter, they saunter in at 9.30, an hour, half an hour late, they've got their latte, they think, hey, it doesn't matter, hair unkept, you know, high-fiving all the office, hey, it doesn't matter, I'm late, <laughs> you know, and off they go. And the boss has said a few things in the office. Yeah, he, he said, you know, just in the team meeting, let's all keep it on time. Let's make sure we're smartly dressed. There's a dress code here, and he's made that clear through a kind of department uh, kind of email. But this, this young lad walks in, and he's done it a number of times. And, and at this moment, the boss says, in my office, in my office, you've got to know clearly what's going on here. And I guess that's what Luke 6 is about. Jesus is going to make it abundantly clear that the scope of his authority reaches to every area of life. Now, let's think of the context. He's speaking to a Jewish crowd, okay? And he's saying, hey guys, I know who you think you are, but do you know who I am? I'm not the little bit that you can add on. It's not like you're saying a big meal. It's like, they're thinking of Jesus as a bit like he's a condiment of a big roast dinner. You know, a bit of mint sauce. A bit of sauce. No. Jesus is going to so, say he's everything. He's all-consuming. He's going to show that he has authority in every area of our lives. And this is going to be one of the greatest challenges uh, as we live our lives to submit to Jesus' all-consuming authority. And that is especially going to be the case because of the way that we live and the culture in which we live. We resist any authority other than our own. But if Jesus is the eternal king of God's kingdom, as he's demonstrated himself to be in these chapters leading up to this chapter, then we must trust, respect, value, love the authority of the king. And it's that authority that we're going to examine today and next week. So we get to our, our, our two points today, and there'll be two points next week as well. The authority of Jesus over, we see over their religion, think of the context of the Jews. Secondly, over their ambitions. Then next week, we're going to look over their ethics, and also fourthly, their decision-making uh, next week. So let's go to our first point. It's on your sheets there. Take up the space at the bottom as well, because we've put that third point there. But firstly... There's a demonstration here of the authority of Jesus over their religion. Now, as I mentioned before, in these first 11 verses, okay, Jesus is making what was implicit in his actions, that many would argue, he's now making explicit in the words that he says, particularly on one subject. And that subject is the Sabbath, as we've seen in our reading. And firstly, he does this with his words. And then in verse 10, you'll see, he, he kind of ratifies his words through his actions. The healing of the man with the withered hand. And he's showing the watching Pharisees that he is Lord, and particularly, that is king, that word means, over the Sabbath, that day of rest. That is, he's saying and showing that he has authority to define what was the most precious thing, the most sacrosanct thing for the Jewish religion. The Sabbath day of rest. Now look at the context. Dive into the passage if you can. Uh, Follow with me. Look at verse 1 and 2 and you'll get the idea of what's going on. It kicks off. Jesus is walking through these cornfields on the Sabbath with his disciples. They flick their hands down. They grab a few kind of bits of corn. They rub them together in their hands. The husk fall off and they've got some grain. They eat it. 
You kind of think, and? Is there a problem here? The Pharisees see them, verse 2, and they declare that what they've done is unlawful, is the term they use. Is it? Jesus responds in verse 3. And here is where we begin to see his authority being made clear. And it's over there, man-made religion. Because he assumes here that he is able and the right person to both interpret the Old Testament law, but also to interpret what was required of that law. And it's over and above what the Pharisees have been teaching. And he'd already done this in the previous section, look back at the end of chapter 5, with regard to fasting, but now he's turning to the Sabbath. If you like, the heat is turning up, because this is the most precious thing to the Jews. But why? Why is the Sabbath so important to the Jews? And the Pharisees particularly. Because the Sabbath was given by God and it was, it was kept as uh, the most important aspect, if you like, of Jewish identity. To undermine or to take away with the Sabbath would be like I don't know, knocking down Tower Bridge, St. Paul's Cathedral, you know, and, and any kind of like landmark at the Gherkin. That's fine. No one goes there anyway. But, you know, um, all of those things and putting a few very bland flats up in their place. Anything iconic or quintessentially British, let's take it out. Yeah, think of food. Let's get rid of fish and chips and probably chicken madras as well. Or something like, you know. And, and say anything that is very British, let's get rid of that. Let's, get away, let's take away all your identity as a nation. The Sabbath day was the day when the Jews stopped working. Everyone else kept, work, kept on working. They were all in the markets. They were plowing their fields. No, the Jews, They stopped. They rested to mirror God's rest in creation, those made in his image. But it was their public declaration of who they were. They were God's people. And this rest Sabbath was given by God to make his people set apart. Literally that word is holy in the sight of others. But what had happened well, the Pharisees, who were the spiritual leaders, in their concern for the Jews to continue and not be compromised by the culture around them at the time, they had created these whole bunch of laws, 200 or more, to, uh, if you like, protect the original law that God had given. So they had, in their authority, kind of made up extra laws to protect the original law and added to God's law by doing that. So let me give you an example. It would be like the Pharisees today, if there were Pharisees. It would be like them acknowledging that as you come up to a traffic light, a red light, there's a line and a light, and you have to stop at the line. That would be the law. And what the Pharisees had done is they said, we've got to be careful we don't cross that line and go through that red light. So we're going to add another law that says, we're going to stop 100 metres away from the, red li- the line and the red light, in order to protect ourselves so we don't go over the line and through the light. Do you see what they were doing? They were adding extra laws on. Just to be careful, it had good intention. And so we see this scene here. Jesus in the fields, he's with the disciples. Is he breaking God's law? No. But he is breaking Pharisaical law. 
So what does Jesus do? Firstly, in verse 3 to 5, have a look at it. He points them to the greatest king that they revered so much, King David, and how he interpreted God's law. And he's pointing them back to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 21 here. And he showed them that actually it was the protection of human life within the law that, if you like, trump carded any other law, the food laws, the Sabbath laws. And that is what David had done with the consecrated bread there. Moreover... He could have pointed them back to Deuteronomy 23, where God provided a law for traveling people in those times when it was hot and in the heat of the day, and they're hungry, and the protection of life, again, was, if you like, the, great, the greater law that people were allowed, even on the Sabbath, to reach down their hand, take up some corn, rub it in their hands, and get grain out to eat. It was like God's provision of a drive through McDonald's of the time. And all of that leads to this huge claim of Jesus in verse 5. Look at it. It's massive. He declares himself as the Son of Man. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Oh, the Son of Man, just even saying that phrase would have been like lighting blue touch paper. You know, he's saying, uh, every, all the Pharisees would have known what he was talking about. He's pointing back to a character in Daniel chapter 7 uh, who has eternal dominion, eternal authority over all things. And you're kind of saying, you don't believe him, do you? And maybe right now you're saying, oh, you're not the son of man. Jesus, you don't have that much power and authority. It's just like the Pharisees. Jesus knew what they were thinking. Have a look at it. <laughs> you know, surely this man we're reading about, he's not just, you know, Showing you how to use a drive through properly, you know, in the kind of time of the, the day, those days. You may be thinking, he's nothing special. That's what the Pharisees were thinking. So verse 9, Jesus challenges their hearts and minds about what the Sabbath is really given for. And here's where he blows their minds, isn't it? To demonstrate his authority, what does he do? A man with a withered hand comes up to him. And he's able to watch as his atrophied muscles grow and grow. And he can move his hands and enjoy health in his hand again. How? How does he do that? How does Jesus do that? Because he's the son of man. He's got all authority. Eternal dominion is his. His word is spoken and it has authority and power. The withered hand is in some ways less offensive to, to Jesus than Jesus' claim to have authority over their religion, over their law, over their Sabbaths. So how do the Pharisees feel? They're threatened. And we see in that last verse of that section, they begin to plot what they might do. He's a threat. We've got to get rid of him. But he's Lord. And he has authority. He's demonstrated it. In his spoken word, and through his healing of this man's hand. So to summarise this uh, section very, very quickly before we apply it. Jesus picks corn, he heals a man's hand on the Sabbath to show his authority over their man-made religion. But before we move on, do you see the claim? Do you see the claim? Do you see the scope of Jesus' authority here? See, Jesus is not saying, and this is so often taught in churches. Hey, look at my good example here. Follow my example. It's not to say that Jesus is not a good example to follow. But none of us could ever show this kind of authority and follow in this way to be Lord of the Sabbath, could we? None of us can do that. 
No, you see, what Jesus is showing us here is that he is utterly unique. He's unique in the authority that he has, and he's unique in the exercising of that authority. That he is Lord of the Sabbath. We know that, I guess, better. If you think back to Mark chapter 10, verse 45, there he says that the Son of Man did not come to be served. That is the Son of Man, same phrase, the, the one with all power, with eternal dominion. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That is, Jesus exercises his ultimate authority in providing what the extended laws of the Pharisees could never provide. They were created to help people keep God's law. But of course the people could not. They just failed God like you and I do every day. In the way we think. In the way we act. In the way that we relate to one another. We all are united in this one thing. That we fall short of God's standards. The Bible calls it simply sin. And we can do it in rebellious ways that we know are wrong. And we can sometimes do it just in that very cool, indifferent, British, middle-class way of turning our backs on God. And the Bible calls it sin, either way. And and those laws that the Pharisees created were, were, in a sense, to try and keep us doing the right thing, but we can't. We can't. We can't. And so what does Jesus do? The Son of Man do? He comes to serve us and live a life that always keeps the law. He's the perfect law keeper. And what does he do? He says, I'll serve you in the ultimate way by giving you all of my perfect life. That is what's on offer as he dies on the cross. He says, my life can be counted as yours. That's how much I love you. That's how much authority I have that I can serve you in that eternal way. And what is on offer is his life in exchange for our lives. Where we have continually let God down. And that life can be punished on Jesus on the cross. It's a wonderful swap. But that is what the cross is all about. Jesus is the king with all authority. He perfectly keeps the law and interprets the law. He claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And if Jesus is not, he's an utter, terrible blasphemer. But if Jesus has the the authority to interpret the law in the way that he has, uh, of the old covenant, of the Old Testament, what follows in the rest of this chapter makes absolute sense. That is, he's the authority then to, if you like... Interpret the new law, the new covenant that will be established in his blood on the cross. See, what follows is Jesus declaring the ethics, the obligations of those who trust in him, who are members of his kingdom. Since the kingdom had not fully yet come, it's a, it's a future kingdom. People now live, we kind of, we're kind of the new exiles like the Old Testament, but we'll now be marginalized, we'll be persecuted, as we'll see in the passage ahead of us. But despite all of that, as we'll see in a moment, we're still blessed because we have eternal kingdom hope. Now this section we're about to look at, and we will look at next week all the more, is such relevance to the church and the wider church today. 
Because we're called to live in obedience to the word of our King Jesus. And to put into practice these radical teachings that we're going to look at. But we're citizens of a future eternal kingdom. Today we're called to live as strangers, if you like, foreigners in this world. Resisting the urge to judge and condemn as we'll see. But one of the great challenges for us is whether we will live under the authority of the king. And that's what we're going to look at in this point and the following two points uh, next week. Let's look at that together now. And we see that in our second point as we look at their ambitions. Jesus' authority over their ambitions. A much quicker point, so don't panic. Now the inclusion of the apostles in verse 12 to 16 in the middle of this section suggests that they're going to have a key role, doesn't it? Uh, As they reveal the the will of the king to his people. And we see that. That's what you've got right in front of you. You can flick through all of the pages of the New Testament and you see the authority of the king being revealed through the apostles as they've written down the New Testament. And the, the apostles were uniquely authorized to do this. It was given by Jesus, that authority. And we are called to obey their word because it is the word of the king, Jesus. But the big point here is that there's no distinction between those two authorities. What Jesus says is what the apostles say in the New Testament. But let's look at the text a bit closer if we can. I'll make a few kind of introductory points and then we'll get to our main point at the end of it. Notice firstly, I'm not going to make a big thing of this, but notice firstly verse 12. I thought this is so interesting. How, how seriously do you take decision making in your life? And as a church, how seriously do we take decision making? Well, Jesus took it so seriously, he was willing to stay up all night to pray. It's worth thinking about, isn't it? Verse 13, move on to there. He chose 12 disciples. None of them were anything remarkable at all. In fact, as one commentator put it, they were remarkably unremarkable, which is fair enough. What was remarkable, though, was the number of them. There were 12. And that would blow the people's minds at the time. Because what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, and he's announcing God's kingdom in its coming. Inclusion into one of the 12 tribes of Israel was the visible sign that you were part of God's people, that you were in his old covenant kingdom. And that now he's just saying, the new kingdom is coming. And it's established in me. The appointing of the 12 was key to this announcement that the kingdom of God was near as he says in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. And it was being established in him. Perhaps also notice, a little aside, in the list of names, do you notice one name that's slightly shocking to be in there? Judas. If you're the son of man, and you've got all authority and eternal dominion, why pick Judas when you know what he's going to do? Why on earth would Jesus do that? I don't think we know the answer. But I do think we can apply it in one simple way. I wonder if it acts as a warning to any of us that thinks that just because our name is written down on a list somewhere, I teach in Sunday school. I'm a home group leader. I'm an elder. I'm a minister, an apprentice. I'm down on a list of benefactors for a particular charity. The fact that our names are included on a list does not make us immune from being as treacherous as Judas was. 
So we get to verse 17. I'm going to push you on a bit quicker here now. What follows here is a, is a series of beatitudes or blessings and then woes. And I want to spend a bit of time on these if I can. I think they'll be helpful to, if you like, show Jesus' authority over our ambitions. Now, the context is really important. Notice who he's addressing in verse 20, addressing the disciples. And he's going to address their ambitions to show them what it really looks like to follow Jesus. Now, you could spend a week on every single one of these. We're not going to, so don't panic. But I think they need to be taken as a whole. Let me show you why. There are four blessings of being a disciple of Christ. Note them if you can. If you look down on your page there. Blessed are those who are poor, who hunger now, who weep now, and men who hate you. Apparently they're blessings, but we'll come to why they're blessings in a moment before you panic. But then there are four woes. You need to avoid being rich, well-fed, laughing, and having any popularity. If you notice how they're comparable, the woes answer the blessings. Do you see how they work together? So what's going on here? Well, what Jesus is doing for his disciples and any of us today uh, that would count ourselves as followers of Christ, he essentially is turning our ambitions upside down. Why? Well, I think mainly because he's showing that the passing nature of what you might consider blessings today need to be seen in the light of the eternity to come. And actually, he seems to be, if you go back to Luke chapter 4 later on, applying all that he learned from his temptation to now his disciples, saying, don't strive for things that don't last into eternity. But let's get to a specific. So I'm just going to work through one of them if I can. How can being, being poor a blessing? It just seems odd, doesn't it? Surely it isn't wrong to have ambitions for wealth, for promotion, for, and so on. So look at verse 20 with me, if you can. Yeah, halfway through. Blessed are you who are poor. Now he's not saying with that, if you are poor financially, you're blessed by God. That is, that you're saved. No. He's really, of course, speaking of those who are poor in spirit, as Matthew 5 makes clear in the list there. Because it's only when we realise our neediness before God that we can really know his blessing and his grace and his mercy and kindness. Now it's true that many people recognise in their physical poverty their need and their, their, their spiritual poverty as well and therefore their need for God. That is true. But not all who are physically poor are spiritually blessed. Just to make sure that they're clear. The point is that blessing from God comes from a right view of ourselves before his holy perfection. Proverbs tells us, doesn't it, that we neither want poverty nor riches because both can be a hindrance to knowing God and his blessing. But poverty in spirit, recognising our lowliness before God, is a blessed place to be because it means we can pour our heart out to him and know his kindness. Likewise, with hunger, with weeping, with being hated, Jesus, in his authority, is reorientating their ambitions. Now, let's get to the woes. The woes that follow, they're not a kind of a deadly, bunch of deadly threats. Jesus isn't going to go, what are you? And so in judgment in any way like that. They, they have a hint of kind of, there's an expression of compassion in them, really. Even of regret. 
But these woes must not be our ambitions. That's the point. What's Jesus saying then? Prosperity, popularity, food. He's saying they're pretty dangerous. They're dangerous ambitions for those following God. Let me explain. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, going home tonight and having a nice G&T, you know, over, you know, kind of an evening dinner, a big, fat, juicy steak. Nothing wrong with those. They were, by the way, they were very big hints to all of you. But G&T steak. Uh, but, you know, uh, none of those things with your friends are bad. But please recognize that if your ambitions in life, if what defines you are those kind of comforts, if, that, if you don't have those kind of comforts in your life, whatever you love in your life, those comforts to be, if you feel you're without, if you feel at a loss without those things, then be warned. I think Jesus is very gently saying, woe to you, woe to you. We live in, I guess, dangerous places in the, in the fact that we live in lovely places with such wealth that's surrounding us and we enjoy, many of us enjoy very wealthy lives. But they are dangerous to a follower of Christ because many around us live for the pursuit of those comforts, for prosperity, for popularity. But in reality, all of those things are woes. That is, they blur our understanding and our vision of who God is. They call us, don't they, to protect ourselves rather than to give ourselves as Jesus taught. Take up your cross and follow me. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did he endure such pain? Well, he says, Hebrews tells us, it was for the joy set before him. And that same joy, that same obedience to God, trusting God, find our security and our purpose in God that will lead to trust the cross and the cross only. And not the comforts that we put around ourselves. And that also takes us to the cross and through the cross. To have a hope for eternity. These blessings and woes show us that Jesus not only wants us to have authority. Uh, not only wants to have authority in some areas of life. But all of the areas of our lives. The person who says, oh I, I just want to be a religious observer. Enjoying you know, the symbol of the cross and the community of the cross. You guys. But not actually ignoring its significance, Jesus is very gently saying, woe to you. The person who likes to be satisfied in who they are, the prosperity, the food, all that kind of stuff, and what they can accumulate, Jesus is saying very gently, woe to you. The person who comes to church and nods in approval, but lives a life of blatant hypocrisy, Jesus is saying, woe to you. What are your ambitions? They'll be different for all of us, won't we? At different stages in our life. I was with a guy yesterday. He said, my ambition in life is to be living without nappies in my life. But what's your ambitions? And my question to him is, my question to myself has been all week, why are your ambitions so low? Why are they so low? Jesus is reorientating his disciples' ambitions here. But what about your ambitions? Do you know the blessings and joy it is to come under the authority of Jesus Christ, who is your loving Lord and Saviour? He has that authority. He's demonstrated that authority. He's vocalised that authority here and declared it and made it known. The question is, will you accept it? Submit yourselves before him and know his blessing. Blessed are those 
who are poor in spirit. And, and the great joy, I finish with this, verse 23, look at it as we close. If you are willing to accept Jesus' authority and submit yourself to him, look at the end, rejoice, leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. My friends, submit yourselves to the authority of Jesus and know his eternal blessing. Look, that's the end of, uh, I think, what I need to say. Uh, I would like to say, we've got a few moments. We normally finish just about quarter past, so we've got five, six minutes uh, for any questions and answers. But the way I normally do this is, if you've got any questions, that's fine. Chat to the person beside you for a minute or so. You maybe just want a point of clarification on something I've said. You maybe want to ask a question in the passage. That's fine. If we haven't got any questions, that's okay. But just, have, just have, spend two minutes chatting to the person beside you. Have you got any questions? And then we'll see if there are any in just one, two minutes. Okay, off you go.